Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Mark, chapter 5. We'll be looking at the first 20 verses of this passage of Scripture. In 1967, when I was 15 years old, my father came driving into our driveway with a car I'd never seen before. And I said to him, whose car is that? And he looked at me and said, it's yours. Well, I was thrilled. I felt like I'd just won the publishing clean, publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. I was about to get my learner's permit. I dreamed that maybe sometimes I would get to fi- drive the family car, and here he was giving me my own car. But my excitement quickly changed as I began to look at the car. I realized my dad gave me a broken car. It was a wreck. The, Fender on the driver's side rear was mashed in and rusty. The hood was creased and bent and rusty. I looked in the back floorboard and there was a hole in the floor I could put both of my feet through all the way to the ground. The battery was under the back seat and it had tipped over and ate a hole. The acid did in the floor. The engine would barely hut along. It was 36 horsepower to start with, and it wasn't running well. It was a wreck of a car. The only hope I had in my 15-year-old world of hopelessness as I began to realize what I had is that Fred Flintstone would show up, sit in the back seat, put his feet through those holes, and power my car, and I would sit in the front and steer it. But my dad had a better plan than that, and I didn't realize that all along he had a plan. And his plan was that we would restore the car. So we did what any self-respecting hillbilly family would do. We went to the local junkyard, and there were plenty of those. Some people had them in their backyard. And we uh, (laughs) found a fender, and we found a hood, and we brought it back, and and we put it on, and uh, we... My dad used his best hillbilly engineering to find some sheet metal and tin snips and sheet metal screws, and we plugged up that hole in the floor, and he got his roofing tar out and sealed that thing up. Man, it was a first-class job, let me tell you. My dad had a buddy that uh, rebuilt the engine, and then to top it all off, my dad and I sanded that car, and we taped up all the chrome, and we put newspaper over the wind and tape over the windows, And we took it to my uncle's body shop, and he spray-painted it, bright yellow. And this was before VW had ever painted anything yellow. I was so proud. I had the only yellow Volkswagen in all of Chattanooga, and I think as far as I know, anywhere else at the time. My father's plan restored my hope as a 15-year-old that I could show my face before my friends in that car. We have a heavenly Father that has a plan to restore our lives and restore our brokenness. Brokenness entered the scene and entered the world and entered our lives when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They chose to go their own way from Him. But our Father... But even before the foundation of the world had a plan to restore us in our brokenness. And we see that plan oh so clearly at Christmas when Jesus shows up on the scene because Jesus came 
to restore what was broken by sin in our lives and in all of creation. And he gave his life on the cross and rose from the dead so that we could experience hope and his, restor his restoration in our brokenness. One of the things we notice about Jesus while he was on this earth and in his public ministry is that we begin to see that plan of restoration carried out in the people that he met. And we're about to read about a man that Jesus met on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, a man who was possessed by demons, a man who was living among the tombs, and Jesus showed up and brought restoration to this hopeless, broken man. And, and we are given the message through this passage of Scripture that if Jesus can do that in that man's life, he can do the same in my life and your life. He can restore the broken places of our lives. So let's read this passage, the first 20 verses of Mark 5, and see what happened when Jesus met this man. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had a dwelling, had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountains. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, and he did not let him, but said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed." We very clearly see this man's brokenness and hopelessness and the depth of it, especially in these first 10 verses. We also see the power and destructiveness of evil. 
And we're reminded of Satan's plan for each of us as we look at the brokenness of this man. We see this man's brokenness in his demon possession. He was a man, we're told in verse 2, with an unclean spirit, that is, an evil spirit. And later in Mark 9, in verse 9, Mark tells us that when Jesus asked the man his name, the demon said, Legion, for we are many. And that word legion is a military term referring to a whole unit of soldiers, uh, maybe as many as 6,000 soldiers. So as we observe that this man was possessed by demons, we come to realize that he was possessed not just by one demon, but by a whole army of demons. We see this man's brokenness as well in his aloneness and in his isolation. He was living among the tombs. Now, when, you, when I tell you he was living among the tombs, I don't want you to picture a cemetery like we have around here. There was no fresh green grass with nice shade trees and benches to sit and meditate among nicely ordered rows of tombs. No, this was a place of desolation. It was a place uh, they used um, caves uh, to bury the dead. And so it was a place where there were caves back in rocks. It was a desolate place. It was an empty place. No one was there. And this man was alone and isolated there in that place living all by himself. The tombs were a place to be avoided. Uh, The people of the day believed that evil spirits lived there. So you know that man was alone. Nobody in their right mind would be in a living in a place like this man was living. We see the man's brokenness in his untamable strength as well. Mark tells us that he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him. The shackles broken in pieces. No one was able to subdue him. That word subdue literally means tame. The people who knew this man viewed him like a wild animal, and a wild animal that could not be controlled or tamed in any way. We see the man's brokenness as well in his nakedness. Luke tells us he had not put on any clothing for a long time. This man had been led to a place where he had lost all dignity, all self-respect, all ability to care for himself as a person. And we see the man's brokenness in his screams constantly, day and night, among the tombs and in the mountains. He was screaming. He was tormented within could not stop screaming in a constant state of inner torment that caused him to cry out in pain and anguish. And he harmed himself as well. He cut himself with stones. And it seems maybe that the screaming and the cutting were ways that he could visibly try to put in words the torment that he was experiencing within himself as he was possessed by these demons. This man was broken to the point that he had lost his very identity as a person. You'll notice that when he opened his mouth to speak, he did not speak, but the demons spoke through his mouth. And Luke tells us that the demons often drove him out into the desert. He even lost control over his ability to go where he wanted to go. This man's personality, his, this man's personal being was hijacked by these demons and under his control. And that's just 
how broken he was, no longer able to function for himself. These demons took this man to a place of brokenness he never thought he would go. And that's what our enemy so often does in our lives. Luke tells us that he was a man from the city. He, he had not always been the way we're seeing him right now in this passage because he was a man from the city, had not put on clothe, any clothing for a long time, and was not living in the house but in the tombs. At one time he lived in the city, and he never imagined he would find himself living where no one wanted to go, living among the tombs. At one time he lived in a house, and he never imagined that he would be out in that desolate place. At one time he wore clothes, and he never imagined that he would be running through the tombs and into the mountains and driven into the desert without any clothes on. Never imagined he would be bound by chains and breaking them like a wild animal. Never imagined he would be crying out in pain and cutting himself. But the demons led this man down a path he never dreamed he would travel. And we have an enemy who wants to do the same thing in our lives and wants to lead us down a similar path, a similar path of brokenness and destruction. I recall what Jesus said as I read about this man. I recalled what Jesus said in John 10.10. He said, the thief comes to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3, 5, 8, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We have the same enemy this man had, and our enemy has the same plan for us that he had for this man. And our enemy's plan is to lead us to a place of brokenness where we live a life totally dominated by sin, this is just as this man was totally dominated by the demons. Jesus said in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Paul said in Romans 7, I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Sin never delivers the good it promises, and it always delivers more brokenness than we could ever imagine once we take the bait of sin. When we pursue sin in our lives, we are cooperating with the enemy's plan to destroy us, and we find ourselves in places of brokenness we never thought we would be. It's our enemy's plan to lead us to a place of brokenness where we're isolated and cut off from meaningful relationships, just like this man was, where we have no self-control, but we're living out of control, a destructive, out-of-control life, the way this man did, where we're stripped of our dignity and worth by the sin that we're involved in, just as this man was, where we live day and night in torment without any peace at all as he lived, where we attack ourselves as he did, maybe not with physical harm, but inwardly divided against ourselves, hating ourselves, tearing ourselves apart, taking us to the point of completely losing our identity, so caught in a cycle of sin and shame 
that we lose control of our mind, our emotions, our will as sin's power reigns over us. The tendency is to look at this man and think, wow, I'm glad I'm not like him. We tend to compare ourselves to him and say, I'm better off than him and feel better about ourselves before the Lord. After all, who would want to be like this man? He didn't have a life. He's as good as dead. He might as well be dead, might as well have been. And he pictures for us our true condition before God without Christ. We're more like this man than we want to admit. If we look at ourselves in light of God's Word, we see the truth of ourselves to be parallel to who he was without Christ. We are just as broken. We're spiritually dead apart from Christ. He is a mirror into our souls showing us who we are without Jesus. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are this man. But then there's another part to this scripture. There's another part to this story. It's the story of restoration. If our hope is in Jesus Christ, then Jesus can, rest and Jesus can restore this broken, hopeless man the way he did, then he can restore us in our brokenness, no matter how hopeless we may feel about the brokenness, the brokenness that's in our lives. Restoration, these last verses, present a picture of a man who is restored in Christ. It presents a picture of the power of Jesus over sin and evil, the Father's plan of restoration for each one of us. If Jesus can restore this demon-possessed man, then surely he can restore us. And when I'm talking about the man being restored, I'm not talk saying that Jesus made this man like he was before the demons took over. No, I'm saying that Jesus restored this man to a new life and this man became like he had never like he never had been because he now had a relationship with Jesus and had new life in him so we see this man's restoration it's very clear in this passage of scripture we see this man's restoration in his freedom from demon possession and there are two big pieces of evidence that this man was actually freed from the de demons and one piece of evidence was the pig's behavior, and the other piece of evidence was the man's behavior. I'm so glad the pigs are a part of the story. It's really cool to think about the fact that once Jesus cast the demons out of that man, the pigs began to act just like the man was acting. And these people observed those pigs do what nobody had ever seen a pig, uh, a herd of pigs do at any place at any time. Together as one, those pigs rushed down a steep, steep bank into the sea and were drowned. They had never seen that happen before. So the behavior of the pigs was evident that the demons that once lived in the man had been cast out and he was free from those demons and all that they were doing in his life. The other evidence is the man's changed behavior. Verse 15 is so key as we look at the restoration of the man. They observed the man sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. 
the very man who had had the legion. Jesus transformed and restored the man. He was sitting down. The very man who had been so wildly out of control, untamable, breaking chains, roaming through the tombs and in the mountains, sometimes being the, driven into the desert, was now sitting down. He was clothed as well. The man who had not put on any clothing for a long time was now clothed. And how do we know that Jesus cast the demons out of the man and he was now free from the power of demons? He was wearing clothes. Jesus restored his sense of dignity and worth as a person. And when restoration begins in us through Christ, we find our worth and our sense of dignity in a relationship with Christ. When we see him sitting, sitting down, Jesus has restored his self-control, and when Jesus begins that process of restoration, he restores self-control in us as believers as a fruit of his Spirit, and we're able to live in freedom, in freedom for sin, from sin. He was also in his right mind, the Scripture says, the very man who was screaming constantly day and night, gashing himself with stones, unable to speak for himself, was now in his right mind. And we know Jesus freed him from the power of the demons because of that. And when Jesus begins a process of restoration in you and me, we're able to find our identity in Christ. Just as Jesus restored his personal identity and gave him peace, we find our identity in Christ and we find our peace in him. Since Jesus was able to free this man from the power of demons, he is able to free you and me from the enslaving power of sin. Sometimes we engage in the battle with sin, and the battle seems hopeless. And the danger that we face when we come to the place of feeling hopeless about our battle with sin is that we'll give in and just accept it and say, I can't be any different from this. But Jesus, who said, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, also said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Restoration in Christ breaks the chains the chains that this man could not break. He could break the physical chains, but he in his own power could not break the chains of the demons, nor can we break the power of sin in our own strength. The only hope we have of being free from enslaving sin in our lives is through the restoration of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm a, I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin, and he said, Who shall set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When Jesus begins restoration in, in us, he begins to set us free. We also see the man's restoration in his desire to know and follow Jesus. Mark tells us that he was sitting down, but Luke adds an added piece of information. Luke says he was sitting down at the feet of Jesus. And that term in that day and time refers to someone who was learning. Sitting to sit at the feet of Jesus was to be learning from him, 
to be his disciple, to follow him. We also see that the man wanted to get in the boat and go with Jesus when Jesus began to leave the area. This man had a desire to know Jesus and follow him. In his brokenness, he did not even know who Jesus was. But now his desire is to be with him, to spend time with him, to hang out with him. And that's what happens when Jesus begins a process of restoration in us. He gives us a desire to be with him, to know him. We notice also, I'll just refer quickly, that the man's restoration is seen in his new relationships with his people. Notice when he wanted to get in the boat and go with Jesus, Jesus told him, go home. Go home to your people. He had lived all this time estranged from family and friends and neighbors and work associates. And now Jesus is saying, invest in those relationships. Move out of the isolation and brokenness into community. And that's what Jesus does in our lives. When he begins that process of restoration, he moves us into deep, meaningful relationships. And then we see the man's restoration in his new mission, in his new purpose. Jesus said, go home and report what great things the Lord has done for you, how he had mercy on you, and what did the man do? He went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, which was a region of ten cities, he began to proclaim what great things the Lord had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what they saw. Jesus commissioned this man to share his story of brokenness and new life in Christ. And he was obedient to do that. And that's what happens in our lives as Jesus begins the restoration process. He gives us the desire to tell our story to others. We tend to underestimate our stories if it's not as dramatic as the story this man could tell. Some of us could tell a pretty dramatic story of restoration in Christ. Some of us can't tell a very dramatic story that might catch the headlines or be written up in the news. But every story of restoration in Christ is a story of significance that is worth telling and will have an impact on other people. If you became a believer when you were a young child and you've spent most of your life following Christ and you never really ended up looking a whole lot like this man looked, tell that story. Because every story is a story of deliverance from the domain of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ, no matter what the circumstances of that story. So we have a story to tell that restores hope Hope to broken people. Our grandkids love for us to read stories to them, and one of their favorite stories is Mr. Bell's Fix-It Shop. Mr. Bell could fix almost anything. In fact, he had a sign on the front window of his store that said, Mr. Bell's Fix-It Shop, I fix everything but broken hearts. And underneath that caption was a red heart with a crack, a jagged crack through the middle of it. Jill was a little girl who lived nearby, and she dreamed of having a fix-it shop one day when she grew up, and so after school, she would come to see Mr. Bell, and Mr. Bell made Jill his special helper. And one day, she was polishing 
uh, the window where that sign was, and she said to Mr. Bell, what's a broken heart? And Mr. Bell said, a broken heart is when you feel so sad that you think you'll never be able to be happy again. So Jill went on and continued to help Mr. Bell, and one day she came running in the door with tears streaming down her face, holding up her doll, Rosie, and she said, I went to my grandmother's house, and my grandmother's dog chewed up Rosie, and she's destroyed, and she'll never be the same again. And Mr. Bell said, don't worry, Jill. I'll fix Rosie as good as new. So Jill went home, and and Mr. Bell stayed late to work in his fix-it shoplet that night. He found an old baseball bat, and he fashioned an arm and a leg for Rosie and and attached it. He found an old lampshade and and took off the fringe and the tassels and made new hair for Rosie and put a a blue ribbon in her hair. He found some paint and, and, and painted a new smile on her face, and he found some cloth and fashioned a new dress and and some shoes uh, for Rosie. And the next day, Jill came in, and Mr. Bell presented the new restored Rosie to Jill. She was elated, as you can imagine, and any little girl would be to get her doll back that had been destroyed. Later that afternoon, Jill was polishing the window again and said to Mr. Bell, Mr. Bell, there's something else you need to fix. And he said, what's that, Jill? That sign, she said. You need to fix that sign because when you fixed Rosie, you fixed my broken heart. So they fixed the sign. And now as people walk by in front of Mr. Bell's fix-it shop, what do they see? They see the word, but, crossed out. And the word even inserted. And it says now, Mr. Bell's fix-it shop. I fix everything, even broken hearts. And there's a band-aid on the heart. Jesus Christ came to fix what is broken. Even our broken hearts, no matter how deeply they're broken, the fix has begins this side of heaven. You know, we're between the first coming of Christ and Christmas and the second coming of Christ in the future. So the process of restoration only begins and we experience a foretaste of it here. But eventually, we'll experience that complete restoration in Jesus Christ. And my desire, our desire as a staff, your desire as a church... That this, is that this church would be a spiritual fix-it shop, a whole lot like Mr. Bell's shop, where broken people are welcome, where broken people find healing in Jesus Christ, and where, where broken people are attracted to the gospel, not because we have it all together, but because we are broken people willing to share our stories of brokenness. And as they hear our stories of brokenness and restoration in Christ, what happens in their hearts and lives? As we tell our stories, hope is kindled in them. May we ever increasing be 
that church where brokenness is restored.